The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and throughout this series in the Gospel of Mark, we have been witnesses to the heart of Jesus. We've been blown away by the discovery of the wisdom, the motivation, and the power of this messianic king. And when John Mark penned these descriptions of Jesus and, and painted this picture in words, I can only imagine that the moments of seeing the kindness of the Savior caused the author, as he penned those words, to smile, maybe even to laugh, and probably in moments to shed a few tears. To see in Jesus the, the heartbeat of God and all that it taught the disciples about his character must have made the writing of the gospel an overwhelming project. Even more than that, it was, it was based upon first-hand accounts. So for the author and for those that he resourced to be able to write this gospel, these were not just dreaming up ideal scenarios to paint Jesus in some sort of perfect light. No, there were faces. There were places that were attached to these descriptions. Peter could recall the face of the man that was let down through the roof by his friends. He could remember the experiences of pulling the net full of fish into the boat and the straining of his muscles that he felt, or the fear of feeling that he would die in the storm. He could recall with amazement the wonder that filled his heart as Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to hush, to be still. It was seared into his mind the reality of what it was like to see Jesus raise a little girl from her bed when everyone else thought she was dead. Or the look and the expression of elation on the woman's face who was healed, who had carried about an issue of blood for 12 years. Peter could recall the surreal experience of seeing Jesus clothed in light and glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he could also feel the fear when a great cloud descended and the glory of the Lord appeared on that place and said essentially, Peter, shut up. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I can only wonder how many tears from being overwhelmed that Peter and John Mark shed as they recalled this intimate knowledge of Jesus the Messiah. Now all of this serves a point. It focuses our attention on the goodness and the beauty of God so that we, as the readers, are drawn in to love Jesus through the mutually shared perspective or lens of the scriptures. So having said that, today's passage reveals, th reveals things about Jesus that are painful to take in. 
The scriptures before us today tell us not only of the kindness and the goodness of Jesus, but also the justice and the severity of our King. And the real challenge that is before us today as as readers, as listeners to the Word of God, is that we will have to avoid jumping to creative mental devices or word pictures that give us permission to dismiss the things that we find difficult. Jesus is a good king. Jesus is the embodiment of love and of compassion. But Jesus is also the righteous judge of all the the earth. He's the arbiter of truth. And the authority that he wields as the righteous judge is given that he might dispense eternal justice over his creation. And there's no doubt that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed in our place for our sins, who lays down his life for the sheep. There's no doubt that there's no greater love than that. But equally true is that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who rules with a rod of iron. So, settle in. Prepare to have your heart challenged by, this, by the absolute holiness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, we have been traveling through the Gospel of Mark and having Try, or trying to orient ourselves to the text here. In the passage previous to this, having come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and his three disciples that he took with him up to the top of the mount are now greeted by controversy at the bottom of the mountain. A father has brought his demon-possessed boy to the disciples to be delivered of his affliction. Now, the disciples were not able to cast him out, so Jesus does that. As they leave the northern part of Israel and make their way through Galilee and travel towards Capernaum, Jesus tells the disciples plainly, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. The disciples are not quite sure what to do with this. They're not sure how this affects their understanding of the coming kingdom of God. But rather than speak up, they just sort of stay silent because they don't have a good category for this. What he's saying doesn't make sense with what they're expecting. As they keep walking, the disciples begin this discussion amongst themselves. And it's a discussion about which of them will have the seat of power when Jesus rises to his place of authority. By the time they get to the house in Capernaum, Jesus has decided to address the discussion. Jesus calls his disciples and asks them what they're talking about. Once again, they stay silent. Now, this is probably due to the fact that they were afraid of how Jesus might respond. You'll remember, in in a previous moment, when Peter spoke out of turn, Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. Nobody wanted that. And so, they remain silent. 
Later in the evening, he calls his disciples together and sits down to teach them. He tells the disciples, the kingdom he uh, will rule is not like the kingdom that they have experienced in their lives. In his kingdom, the way up is down. The first will be last. The greatest will be the servant of all. And then he takes a child and he places the child in their midst for them to see. He then picks up the child into his arms and he says this. He says these words. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now the lesson here is pretty straightforward. The way you treat the least is how you are treating me and my father. John at this point, the apostle John, responds to Jesus by really only keying in on part of what Jesus has said. He sees that the name of Jesus seems to be important to him. After all, Jesus has said, whoever receives one such child in my name. So, John then highlights the fact that the disciples have been very zealous for the name of Jesus. In fact, they saw someone that was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they stopped him from doing that because he was not one of them. He was not one of the twelve. And in John's mind, the name of Jesus is copyrighted. Only we get to use that. We're the ones. Right? Jesus then tells the whole group, look, if someone is setting people free from demonic oppression in my name, he isn't really going to be able to talk bad about us afterwards if it works. Right? If he's not against us, he's for us. So don't prevent him from setting people free. Then he goes straight back to this analogy of children. He goes right back to to talking about the way that they treat other people. First, he makes this positive statement saying, even a cup of cold water, water given to you because of me gets an eternal reward. The way my followers are treated is received as though it is the way that they are treating me. Now, in our section today, though, The tone of Jesus in context of this conversation shifts from something positive and affirming to something more sobering, maybe even negative in our estimation. As Jesus makes a more negative statement, he is highlighting the seriousness of what is at stake when we consider the way that we live. So let's take a look at the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is... Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire, and salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There are essentially three components to these verses that I want us to consider for today. Our outline goes like this. Because of the hellishness of hell, verse 42, deal with others carefully. Verses 43 to 48, take your sin seriously. And verses 49 to 50, live in the light of eternity. Because of the hellishness of hell, deal with others carefully. Take your sin seriously and live in the light of eternity. So let's look at verse 42 first. Because of the hellishness of hell, deal with others carefully. Here, Jesus now reverses the making of a positive affirmation from verse 41 that concerns the reward for the treatment of his servant well. And now he shifts to the negative implications of what it means if you treat his servants poorly. And it has the tone of a protective father and a a righteous judge. Note the specific language that he uses. He says, first of all, whoever causes one of these little ones. Apparently, Jesus thinks of his people as his children. He has the loyalty of a father towards his kids and lays down the facts as they are. If you hurt my kid, don't expect me to take that lightly. Then he goes on. If he causes them to sin, here he's saying that it isn't just a matter of wounding them through persecution or or hurting their feelings. Rather, because of your influence, you cause one of Jesus' kids to sin against him or to fall away from him. And then he says, it would be better if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You know, in that day, there were two different sizes of millstones that were differentiated in the Greek language. There was a greater millstone that was used, that was turned by a donkey or a beast of burden. It was a giant millstone that had to have the strength of an animal to get it to turn, to grind the grain. And then there was a smaller millstone that would be used by a woman to grind a small amount of brain. Here, Jesus refers to the larger kind, turned by a donkey, the milos onikos in the Greek, and not the small one that is turned by hand, which is simply just the milos. 
Now, in, in current history, in Jesus' day, the Romans had actually used this technique of tying a millstone around somebody's neck and casting them into the sea as a punitive judgment against people who had uh, revolted against the gover government or insurrectionists, like what took place in Galilee. It's referred to in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. And in Hebrew poetry, nothing could be more terrifying. You see, the, the sea was often described as a dark place of turbulence, a place of spiritual darkness and of judgment. And in the Hebrew mind, the sea is a terrible place to die. People just disappear, and they don't come back. There can't be the proper treatment of their bodies in burial. It's a horrific place to die in the Hebrew mind. This verse gives the other side of the idea that Jesus has previously expressed. Anyone who discouraged a disciple of Jesus from following him faithfully could expect severe treatment from God. Probably, Jesus uses this concept of a little child, one of my little ones, to illustrate or represent a childlike disciple, somebody who doesn't have much depth but is still growing and maturing. This is no lighthearted or, or funny reference. It is serious. Jesus is saying it is better to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than to mistreat one of his growing little ones one of his disciples. The, common, the commentator Charles Hodge writes this about this. He knows that this is likely a warning to the disciples as they consider the way that they're treating the man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He says this, This brief incident stands as a firm rebuke to the spirit of sectarianism. It condemns the exclusive attitude which insists that only those who carry out their work in harmony with our own views and practices can be accepted as really doing God's work. If they demonstrate they're on God's side in the war with Satan, even though their views may be imperfect, they must not be condemned for such work or regarded with abhorrence. I love this story that George Whitfield, who was one of the, he was an Anglican evangelist and one of the key leaders instrumental in the Great Awakening. But he had a quote about John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement. He said this, John Wesley tells of a dream that he had. And in the dream, he was ushered to the gates of hell. And there he asked, are there any Presbyterians here? Well, yes came the answer. And then he asked, are, are there any Baptists, any Episcopalians, any, any Methodists? And the answer was yes, each time. Much distressed, Wesley was then ushered to the gates of heaven. And there he asked the same question. And the answer was no. No, he said. To this, Wesley asked, well, who then is inside? And the answer came back. There are only Christians here. The way that the church backbites and treats one another matters to Jesus. 
Jesus is taking stock of how we treat his people, his little ones. He takes seriously the way that they are treated because what you do to them is what you do to him. You see, in those days, the way you treated an ambassador who had come in the name of the king is the way that you were treating the king. If you spurn or abuse the ambassador, the king takes that personally as though that is the way that you were treating him. Now imagine that the ambassador that is sent by the king is his son or his daughter, and you mistreat them. How much more can you expect the king's wrath? Now this type of warning about causing others to stumble is found in other places in Scripture as well. It's not something that God takes lightly. We are to be encouragers of faith and of obedience in the body of Christ and not destructive to the growth of those who may not yet be mature. You know, if I could just offer a a little aside here, something that is related to this point. The ambition to make disciples is not only a command in Scripture, It is a holy calling that is placed upon every believer. Being careful to nurture the faith and the spiritual maturity of others is vitally important to Jesus. When we enter into the lives of others to nurture their growth, Jesus takes that, he receives that, as though that that action being taken is personally directed at him. You know, his investment, if you think about it, in these little ones, the people who are being discipled, is already quite high. He gave them life. He knit them together in their mother's womb. He sustained their lives with breath, with food, a heart that beats at his pleasure and his command. He's called them unto himself by the Holy Spirit. He sent his son to take their sin. He sent his spirit into their hearts. And now he is inviting you into the sacred work that is taking place in their lives. We should enter into that with reverence. Serving the little ones here at Heritage or in your own household. That's not child care. It's not babysitting. It is the equivalent of personally ministering to Jesus. It is as though you were washing his feet, leading a huddle group or a Bible study. It's not a religious activity. It is entering by permission into the holiest of holies in the lives of the people that we care for. Serving in the youth group and mentoring is not just something that you put on a resume to demonstrate community involvement. It is an invitation to take off your shoes and to tread on holy ground. The meeting of 
a friend, going out to them for co- going out with them for coffee, to pray, to give counsel, to express care for the brokenness in their lives, is ministry to Jesus. And we all should enter into that with a holy reverence and awe for the fact that God might use us in that eternal capacity in their lives. And Jesus takes it seriously. How we handle that is how we are handling him. You say, well, how seriously is it? It, Well, let's take the words of Jesus here. So serious that Jesus says leading people into sin and rebellion through those relationships provokes his righteous anger and judgment. And a better option to facing him is having a giant millstone hung around your neck and then being thrown into the sea. That's the words of Jesus. And so... The warning here is without compromise. Deal with others carefully. Well, now that the lighthearted stuff is over in this passage, let's dive into the heavy part. In verses 43 to 48, because of the hellishness of hell, not only deal with others carefully, but take your sin seriously. In this short section of verses, there are three repeated sort of stanzas to what Jesus says here. But the theme is the same. Deal with your sin radically. Take action against your sin. If it is your hand making you sin, cut it off. If it is your foot, cut it off. If it is your eye, pluck it out. For it is better to enter into eternal life as a one-handed, one-legged, one-eyed person than to enter hell as a whole person. Now we know that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. Hyperbolically, is an, it's an adjective in, in language that exaggerates or overstates the truth here. And we know that because Jesus has already taught that it is not the things on the outside that cause defilement, but it is the things on the inside. And you can, you can cut off your hand and still be imagining sin. You can pluck out your eye and the brain, the heart, will still come up with creative ways to involve you in sin. That doesn't solve the problem. But he is saying that the disciples should take their sin their, and their battle to mortify the flesh, that is to, to put to death sin in their lives, seriously. I think Kathy Johnston said it best in our sermon prep meeting this last week. She said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Listen, God wants us to be active in our battle against sin. It is his expectation that if we agree with him about the sinfulness of sin, we will be at war with it in the same way that he is. 
Notice the consequences that Jesus brings up here. In verse 43, he says, hell, the unquenchable fire at the end, is the consequence. Verse 45, they'll be thrown into hell. Verses 47 and 48, thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, that word for hell is Gehenna in the Greek. It is the name that is used for the Valley of Hinnom. And in the book of Kings, during the reign of Asa and Manasseh, the children of Israel used the Valley of Hinnom for human sacrifice to the god Molech. In this valley, they would beat drums loudly to drown out the screaming of infants that were being burned to death on the altar to Molech in the name of prosperity. The Israelites burned their babies upon an altar to a false god. It was one of the biggest spiritual stains in Israel's history. And they did all this thinking that they would be more prosperous if they just sacrificed their child. They thought, oh man, if I just, if I just offer up my firstborn to Molech, then surely the harvest in the following fall will be a good one. Now, Josiah, a later king, put an end to the human sacrifices to Molech. And to take away the sanctity of the place, Josiah turned the Valley of Hanom into the dump for Jerusalem perpetually. In that place, the bodies of dead animals and garbage were tossed continually. There were parasitic worms crawling around through the refuse and maggots and flies. The idea that that Jesus is picking up on here is that because new carcasses were being added to the dump, the worms had a new host to go to. They never died. Hell is then pictured as a place where the bodies continue to accumulate. Now another facet of this picture is that because of the belief in the resurrection of the dead, hell is a place where the bodies that accumulate are never consumed because they are eternal bodies. Notice one particular word from verse 48. The word there. Their worm does not die. The worm that belongs to the body disposed of never dies because the body itself is never consumed. You see, the Bible teaches that there is an eternal resurrection of the dead, both of the saints and of the damned. Some of the resurrected will live in eternal life, and some of the resurrected will be raised into eternal judgment. Now let me pause for just a moment here because I think we need to think this through. The idea of hell has fallen out of favor in recent times. There is a rather large growing movement within Christianity to sort of discard it as old, archaic, maybe even a scare tactic. 
There are essentially three perspectives held by people who profess faith in Jesus but wrestle with this idea of conscious eternal torment. These three views are, one, that hell is temporary. That is, after a season of pain for sin, everyone gets out eventually. The second view is that hell is annihilation. The eternal state is that of non-existence. The sinner is resurrected for judgment and then annihilated. And the third view is that hell is eternal conscious judgment. The resurrected person is imprisoned and endures the eternal wrath of God at their specific sin forever and ever. Now, people love to argue about those things and love to you know, have philosophical debates about whether or not that can be true and God is loving. But let's, let's not philosophize. Let's just read Scripture for ourselves and let's just take a look at some Scriptures that deal with this topic of hell. First of all, it is described as a place of fiery agony. Here in this passage, we see that reality in Mark 42 to 48. But it's also spoken of and described in the same way in other places, like Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, just one chapter over from that previous description. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It is a place of fiery agony. Now, whether this is a literal place with literal fire, is it just imagery? We don't know. But the point is that this is a place where people end up as a result of not coming to Jesus as a Savior. And it's forever. Experiential conscious torment is another thing that is hotly debated. Like, can a loving God really do that? Let's just read Luke chapter 16, verse 23, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Describes the rich man and his place in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. He is awake, he is aware, he is conscious, and he is tormented. Matthew 22, verse 13. Then the king said to the, to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Consciousness of the suffering. It is eternal in duration. 
It is the eternal duration of the active wrath of God. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and of its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Forever is a long time. Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus concludes in that passage in verses 45 and 46, talking about the goats or those that are separated unto hell. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. In that passage, the same use of eternal is for the righteous and for those that are perishing, those who end up in hell. Can we rightly say that eternity applies to those who inherit life and does not imply that those who inherit the judgment of God will suffer eternally? You see, based purely on a plain reading of the descriptions of hell in Scripture, hell is eternal, conscious judgment where the resurrected person endures the wrathful judgment of God forever. Full stop. This is more fearful than I'm really able to take in. Imagine suffering the wrath of God at sin for a thousand lifetimes and then having the realization that you are no closer to the end than when you began. Imagine the absence of all of God's graces and joys and the remaining presence of his white-hot wrath and displeasure. Imagine the guilt and the shame that you cannot escape for all of eternity or the regret of knowing the many times that God pursued you and pleaded with you to run to Him for salvation, to abandon your sin. You cannot escape it for all of eternity. Imagine the scenarios that would replay in your mind for eternity of all the sins that you committed, the damage that was done, the lives affected, the opportunities for salvation that you rejected, 
And let that image hang in your hearts this morning. Let it rest in your minds and come to rest over your soul and feel the weight, the gravity of that reality. Let it be burned into your consciousness. Because it's meant to do something in us. It is meant to motivate us towards holiness. Now, I I want us to enter into this understanding of what Jesus said here the same way that the disciples entered in for just a moment. At this point, Jesus has not gone to the cross. There is no forgiveness through the cross. Grace is not fully realized at this moment. They've just heard the words of Jesus... And they are sitting with the knowledge of their sin. All of this that Jesus has said is in response to the way that they had treated a man who was casting out demons in his name. What are they left to think? How are they feeling in this moment? What is it that is placed in pressure upon their hearts by the words of Jesus? Take your sin seriously. Jesus does. Deal with it radically. Don't be fooled into thinking that just because sin is something that others don't see or your specific sin is something that others don't see, that it's something that Jesus just ignores or, 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 or treats lightly. Don't be self-deceived into believing that your, your sin is simply a matter of minor inconvenience to God. I think about this reality, I immediately find myself wanting to run for escape. Don't you? Don't you find yourself, even right now, hearing, like, and this is heavy, eternity under the wrathful judgment of God. Immediately, I find myself wanting to run to the cross. I find myself hopeless without grace when I hear these words. Jesus' words at this moment are heavier than the millstone that he was talking about at the beginning of this. And we need to feel the weight of this text, the way the disciples must have felt it. Here, as Peter is writing through John Mark, his memories of Jesus, after, years after the death and resurrection, Peter is recalling the most significant moments that he had with Jesus in order to have Mark write it down. And this teaching right here stands out in his mind. It's burned into his brain. Sin is serious. You know, David in Psalm 51 uses two different descriptors for sin in his confession of sin after his sin with Bathsheba. He uses the word iniquity and transgression. Here's here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
He uses iniquity and transgression. Iniquity is, it teaches us that sin is moral impurity. It is not something that, it is not simply something that we do. It flows from who we are. We are fountains of iniquity. Sin behaviors flow from and are caused by the hearts of sinners. And we may be able to change certain behaviors or actions, but we cannot stop the flow of sin that comes from us. It is part of the marrow, a part of the sinew of who we are, and we are hopeless to escape it because wherever we go, the sin is in us. We bring it with us. Sin is not only iniquity, but it is also transgression. Sin is a rejection of God's rule and authority. It places the self on God's throne, and it says to God, not thy will be done, but my will be done. Sin not only breaks relationship with God, It replaces God with a self-made authority. It is not just the rejection of God's commands. It is the rejection of God himself. It is personal towards him. So personal, in fact, that throughout the scriptures, whenever God wants to highlight the way that he feels about sin, he compares it to adultery in the scriptures. And this occurs over and over again throughout the Bible. From God's perspective, sin is not just legal rebellion. It is moral unfaithfulness at the deepest level. And we are all guilty of moral transgression. And that transgression is the equivalent of loving created things more than loving God. And we, friends, are hopeless to repair that. Because we're the offenders. We're the ones that did it wrong. We cannot take away what we have done through our sin. And this leaves us in a terrible position because we are left without a human solution. There is no way to undo what has been done. This is the condemnation that we live under as sinners. This is the essential dilemma of the human condition. We may do many good things. We may be kind to strangers or love our children or help an old lady cross the street. We may be moved with compassion for the brokenness of the world around us. And while there's no judgment for the good done, there is no removal of all of the evil that has been perpetuated against God. There's no removal of the heart of rebellion that produces this sin. The damage of sin is eternal. It is irreversible. And so is the judgment, the hell that follows. You see, if there is no sin, there is no need for God's moral law or the truth of Scripture. There is no need for grace. There is no need for the gospel. There is no need for the ministry of the church. And if there's no hell, 
The gospel loses its power. The law was not necessary. Jesus did not need to live a sinless life. The cross of Jesus is not needed. Sin is not sinful. God is not as holy as he declared himself to be. There is no final judgment. There is no need for forgiving and saving grace. And there is no ultimate justice in eternity. Sin and hell are core doctrines of the Christian faith. Aaron Beamish reminded me of this quote from Jonathan Edwards this week. It is an excerpt from his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards says this, The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. And they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. The longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. Listen, sin is serious. Hell, whatever that is, is not where you want to be. And Jesus' death and resurrection are the only solution that can be offered. So what's the call? What do we do? Repent. Repent. That's what we do. We turn away from our sin. We cast our hopes upon Jesus to save you from his righteous wrath and judgment. We repent of our sin and we cry out to him that he might save us. That's the solution. It's the only solution. You see, because of the hellishness of hell, we are called to deal with others carefully to take our sin seriously, and to live in the light of eternity. In these final two verses, Jesus ends this teaching with a short but meaningful reference to the sacrificial system, where every sacrifice was to be offered with salt. The salt and the fire were were meant to sort of barbecue the meat that was on the altar and make it pleasing or make it taste good to God, if you will. Now, there was a way to cheat that system, though. You could buy salt that was of poor quality. It was salt that was cut with minerals. But it decreased the flavor of the salt. The saltiness of the salt was diminished because it was being cut with other things. And this seems to be the thrust of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, offer a worthy sacrifice to God with your life. Deal with others carefully. Take your sin seriously. Live in the light of eternity. You know, Peter talks about this eschatological judgment or this end times judgment in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. I just want to, I want to read this to you because I want you to hear how he talks about this. 
He says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And since all these things are, be to, are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, this is his conclusion, because eternity is on the horizon, because God is patiently waiting for people to repent and to call out to him as Savior. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot, or blemish, and at peace. Peter's understanding of eternity is not abstract or ethereal. It is not a scare tactic. It is the reality that he lives with. It is concrete. And it has a daily impact on his understanding of how to live. His logic is that if we, if we know how the temporal world comes to a close, and the eternal world begins... It should affect the way that we live. Peter here agrees with the words of Jesus from Mark 9. Take your sins seriously. Fight the flesh. Purify your hearts. To those who have not placed their trust in Jesus, if there's some that are here now or watching online who are in that place, this stands out as a hopeful reminder that the delay of God's judgment is an exercise of his patience. Jesus is holding back the use of his authority in judgment in order to allow you time to act. He wants you to repent, to trust in him. So today, if you're here and you're in that place, now is the moment to act. If God has been speaking to you through his word, today is the moment to take action. Today is the moment to turn away from your sin and cast yourself wholly upon the grace of God and receive the forgiveness that is guaranteed through his substitute as a sacrifice for your sin. It's time to turn away from your sin and begin surrendering your life to Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning, you're in that predicament. God's speaking to you by his spirit. You are no doubt feeling the weight of that in this moment. Do not leave this place without dealing with that. I'm going to ask in a moment that our elders and shepherding elders to place themselves around the room, to be available at the edges of the room for prayer, to be able to talk with you, to be able to walk you through what that looks like to give your life to Jesus. And I'm saying don't, don't leave this room without dealing with that. 
In a moment, we're going to begin worshiping. I'm going to invite the team to come up right now. This is a communion Sunday, which means that it is time once again to meditate on what God has done for us through Jesus. The church of Jesus has followed the command of Jesus to take physical elements that remind them of his sacrifice for sins. To take bread and wine as a physical reminder of what Jesus has done. By eating the bread and the wine, we, we, we're slowing life down to take in and process what God has accomplished for us on the cross and to give thanks in communion. By eating the bread, we are eating the representation of his body that was offered as a sacrificial lamb in our place. And the wine or the juice represents the blood of Jesus that was spilt on the cross and guaranteed the promise that God would make a new covenant with his people to forgive their sin. It is a time of celebration for what Jesus has done, but it is also a time of examination as we weigh the value that we've placed on it. I just want to read to you from the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. as he talks about this reality in the church. Beginning in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. One of the main things that communion does is causes us to bring our hearts before Jesus, examine them once again afresh, and say, God, where do I really stand with you? Am I living in a way that puts faith and trust in you? Am I valuing your sacrifice? Am I engaged in the battle against sin? Do I have a clean heart before you? And I want to invite you, before taking communion separately during worship, in a Godward attitude, to invite the Holy Spirit to examine your heart today. To take seriously the words of Jesus in Scripture. Amen? Father, meet and lead your people as we come to your table, as we think about the glory of what you've done in the cross as we meditate upon the reality of hell and the great cost of our sin. May your spirit be at work in our midst. In the name of Jesus, amen.